my biggest resilient moment, I would say, is when my caregiver told me that I would never amount to anything, that I would die in prison and with AIDS because I came out to him. And uh, getting rejected from people, you know, I realized that being a Latina uh, minority, LGBTQ, and a businesswoman, it was actually the greatest benefit that I could ever have because that's how Walmart reached out to me. So what is the opportunity that you see in whatever quote unquote challenge that's there, even though it's not really a challenge, it's just a challenge that somebody else has put as a challenge in front of you. So many people never have the courage to face their dreams because they mistakenly believe that their small beginnings equal a small life. That is why I am so excited to introduce you to my new friend, Maggie Cook, today. She's going to share her journey from growing up in an orphanage in Mexico to the CEO of a successful $200 million salsa company. In a word, her journey is epic. You'll be inspired. Plus, she's going to share the three R's of highly successful people. Welcome to episode 131 of Life Amplified. My name is Dan Mason. In 2012, I was overweight, getting divorced, battling depression, and feeling trapped in a career where I was successful but bored and unfulfilled. And it's actually the greatest gift I've ever been given. I use my pain as a springboard to discover my life's purpose. Now, I want to share the same tools and strategies which help transform my life with you so you can live Life Amplified. One of the traps that keeps people from creating an awe-inspiring life vision is when we get hijacked by our nervous system, it's hard to see beyond our current circumstances. I have so many emails since the first of the year from listeners who said, Dan, I have a dream. I want to pursue it, but there's so much craziness going on in the world. I'm stressed. I am anxious. Today's guest is a living example of what happens when you go through extraordinary hardship but still allow yourself to dream big. And I think when you hear Maggie's story, perhaps the thing that you're going to walk away with today is that you really don't have problems in the way that you believe that you do. Uh, Maggie is extraordinary. She's a CEO, keynote speaker, and author whose journey began in an orphanage in Mexico alongside 68 brothers and sisters. After immigrating to the United States to play college basketball, she found herself homeless after graduation, but a random fresh salsa competition at a state fair turned out to be the thing that would change her life forever. From that event and an $800 loan, Maggie built Maggie's All Natural Fresh Salsas and Dips, a company that she eventually sold for $211 million to Campbell's Soup. Coming up today, she's going to share her unconventional and unique techniques that made her super successful in life and in business. Maggie has been featured at CNN, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, NBC, USA Today, and more. She's also the author of the book, Mindful Success, How to Use Your Mind to Transform Your Life, which is available on Amazon. Some of the key things we're going to talk about today is the power of making a courageous decision and the one decision that grew her business from $12,000 to $1.9 million in the span of a year. We're going to talk about resilience and why it's not just about withstanding adversity, but being adaptable in the face of adversity. Plus, Maggie is going to share the three R's of highly successful people. 
If you love the episode today and you're moved by this interview the way I was, please let us know you're listening. You can screenshot this, upload it to Instagram. You can tag me at CSC Dan Mason. You can find Maggie at Maggie Cook. That is M A G I E C O O K. Don't forget to click subscribe, give us a follow, and if you're listening on Apple, always appreciate those five-star ratings and reviews. This is one of my favorite interviews we have done in probably three years. Maggie Cook is teaching us the three R's of highly successful people this week on Life Amplified. Maggie Cook, welcome to Life Amplified. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure to speak to you. Really an honor to have you. I think people are going to be really moved and inspired by your journey and your story from an orphanage to a hundred million dollar company. We're going to talk about that. But, you know, one of the things that I think gets in people's way a lot when they allow themselves to dream bigger is we get hung up on the biography. We think that our past equals our future, that our childhood equals our destiny. And I think that you're going to have so much, such an inspirational story for people to think bigger about their own possibilities. Let's go back to the very beginning. Tell me about growing up in an orphanage in Mexico. You were born in the orphanage, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Así es, claro que sí. I I was uh, in the central uh, mountains of Michoacán, and um, I was one of 68 kids. Uh, 60 of them were adopted, and uh, there's another 200 kids that live there in the orphanage from the time that I was born to the time that, that I left, which was 18 years old. Wow. What was that experience like for you? I mean, you've talked a lot about growing up. This wasn't a well-funded orphanage, if I'm mistaken. I think that there was a lot of poverty. There was a lot of hunger. Could you just speak to what the day-to-day was of your experience growing up? Well, it was certainly not normal. You don't often hear of families with uh, over 60 kids. And we literally grew ourselves up. Our caregivers, there was just two of them, uh, our mom and dad. And we, I literally grew up with an older adult helping me grow up. And when I was a young adult, I was helping someone who was two, three years old or, or older grow up and we lived in the middle of nowhere in the mountains, so there was no access to the city. And we often suffered with poverty, with eating, with foods. I remember that we were so hungry that my brothers and I resorted to hunting with, with our hands. And this is actually my original knife that I used to hunt with. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and, and you I would just used- go out and look for wildlife or look for animals in the, in the mountains? So we had a barn and we had a lot of rope. We would build these nets. We would do like um, nuts and the rope. Like, and, and so we would take this rope and we also had access to spotlights from the barn. They had these huge batteries that you would buckle them up in your uh, waist and then you would wear it here. Yeah. It would go really, really far. And we would use that to, we would climb the trees and we would use that to kind of blind the, the prey at the bottom. And then we would throw the nets and catch it and we would skin it, uh, open it up, eat it up there in the woods and then come back. How old were you when you were learning to do this? Oh, my gosh. I was exposed to the outside, which was basically all the time. Uh, My earliest memory is probably six years old Uh, Mm -hmm. with hunting was probably 
11 years old. And that's when I also built a cave on the side of a canyon uh, with this knife also. You and built a cave with a knife? Yes, I have photos of it still. Um, <laughs> it was it was a cave where I felt like it was my secret hiding place. It was in a canyon that was practically impossible to walk. You know, you had to like sure. grab branches and like to get to it. That's why nobody ever found it until years later when I left there. And uh, but it was my my place of peace uh, and kind of like meditation. And I didn't mm. even know anything about meditation back then. Wow. You know, what I'm hearing you share is from a very young age, the instinct was just to survive, you know, to make it through the day, to get the next yes. meal, to survive hardship. And I think that when your nervous system is in that constant fight or flight mode about just trying to get through the day, it's hard to get to the point where you're able to dream bigger. How were you able to cultivate a new vision for your life? And tell me about the basketball career and maybe how that played a part in you escaping and getting out. I think the biggest thing for me, I, I was always a dreamer. I was always occupying my mind with thinking, you know, how can I not hurt or suffer? I mean, we were faced with physical abuse. You know, we there's some sexual abuse, emotional abuse. Sure. And so... I was off, often occupying my mind with, I'm the superhero, I'm going to conquer the world and going into the woods or going into my cave or doing different things. But I also saw myself as a super, super successful woman. And I was dressed in, in this dress with high heels and I had long hair behind this desk, beautiful mahogany desk. And I would see myself already successful and I would write my goals as even though I, I didn't know anything outside of that barbed wire fence, I... I was seeing beyond because I wanted, I had hope, uh, even though I, I was not seeing there because you're, you're just stuck. It's like a life where you have no options because you have to stay there. Of course. So let's talk about that. At what point did you start to learn basketball as a sport? You know, because on one hand, we're talking about like living with barbed wire and hiding out in a cave. Where would you even find like a basketball court? And talk to me about how you learned the sport and how that was at least the on-ramp for you to escape into a new life. So I was always looking for a way out. Soccer was a big sport in Mexico and I played a lot of soccer, but then I thought, you know, I have to, I was kind of thinking entrepreneurial back then. I was thinking, what can I do that would give me truly an edge to get out of here? And one day I was walking past the uh, principal's office in junior high, which we ended up, uh, we would, we were going in town for that, for junior high. And I was, I saw Michael Jordan play in this little black and white TV in his office. And I said, and I asked if I could come in and watch him play every time I had a break. And he said, yes. So that's where I started learning how to bounce the ball, put it through between your legs, around your back, behind your back and all this, you know, free throws, everything. And I started the practice and I started to, it was just a dirt court at the at an orphanage, and I put up a little post, did a hole with some of my brothers, and then uh, one of my caregivers saw that we had interest, and they put a little basketball hoop. But that's how we started, and I really got good when I had an adopted brother. His name is uh, Pancho, and he couldn't walk. So remember how I was telling you that we had to care for others like younger than us, Pancho. He was, we found him in a dumpster. He had a spinal bifida. He couldn't walk. So we had to, oh it was my, my job to carry him wherever we went. 
and wherever I went. And so I had this brilliant idea that we can't really go much, a lot of places. So I asked Pancho if he would play a game with me of stop and turn and dribble this way, dribble that way. So he would guard me from falling over or breaking my head or something on that court. And he did, and we did that. And I did it with a blindfold. And you I were learning realize, to play basketball blindfolded. Yes. <laughs> that's, why, Unbelievable. that's why I got so good that when I was in high school, I got recruited to play basketball for the Mexican national team in Mexico City. And you have to keep in mind, I'm only 5'2", so, yeah. so I'm not very tall. And so I was fast and I had skill and I learned a lot of skill. And that really, truly helped me. And from there, that led to a full scholarship to come to the United States, correct? You played collegiate ball in Charleston, correct? Well, what happened was I was so excited to leave for the Mexican national team. I I thought that was my ticket out. But they were so interested. They asked us to come to Mexico City, La Ciudad de Mexico. And they were so excited. They gave us a letter, an acceptance letter. We went back to the orphanage and they told us that we would give, uh, get a call in three months. And so we were waiting. We waited for three months. We didn't get a call. And my caregiver brought out a American football, which we'd never experienced with. But he mm-hmm. showed us how to throw it and we started throwing it. And I started playing with my brothers. And one of my brothers threw a really, really long pass. And I jumped and catched it and I broke my collarbone. Which would be problematic with playing basketball for the Mexican national team, I would think. Yes, yes, yes. And so I went to my caregiver and he he is a doctor and he basically told me he I remember he pulled my shoulders backwards and was so painful. And he told me that my dreams were over. And a couple of days later, the Mexican national team called me or called us and I couldn't go. And so it was very devastating. A lot of people talk about like losing an athletic opportunity or a career or an injury, but to put it in perspective, it wasn't, I mean, this wasn't about losing basketball at that point in your life. It was really your ticket out of the poverty, correct? Yes, absolutely. How how did you cope with that? I can't even imagine. Well, I was very, very saddened. And I remember I kept thinking, how could this happen there's gotta be something that I'm not seeing. Uh, there's gotta be something, some other opportunity. And I'm just going to pretend like this didn't happen and keep hoping for something good to happen. And I don't I was so sad, especially coming from a doctor. <laughs> My caregivers took us in a bus to the U.S. to tour the different states to grow funds for the orphanage. And we stopped in West Virginia there was a, they asked us to a picnic. And I remember we came in with a bus and there was a basketball court, an outside basketball court. And my brothers and I ran to it and I picked up the ball, old rugged ball, and we started to play. And there happened to be the coach of the University of Charleston and she saw (laughs) me play. And that was it. You got a scholarship? Yeah, she she asked my caregiver if she if I could come and play basketball. And I came, I didn't know any English. It was so hard, but I ended up playing basketball, soccer, a road crew and ran track and scholarships to pay for my education. Unbelievable. What was your degree in? Did you have a business degree? What were you studying before? Oh, gosh, no, Uh, I wish I wish I would have done that. Uh, My degree was uh, interior design. When I graduated, I couldn't find a job because in West Virginia, there was only two other interior design firms. And I 
reached out, but I wasn't hired. So I just started living out of my car in the winter months and it was so cold and I would turn on the heat on high just to, you know, keep up, you know, the warmth. And I didn't tell anybody because number one, I didn't want to go back where I came from. (laughs) Yeah. And number two, I just trying to figure out my life. And then one day there's a lot of hills in West Virginia and my car engine explodes and it's on flames. The whole hood is up and it's on flames. And I just grab my bags and start walking. So I live between the street and the woods, mostly the woods, because I was familiar with that. And I didn't even know that I was homeless because that's how I lived in the orphanage. It was just for you. It was just the, I guess, the baseline for so much of your life. Mm -hmm. How does one go from living in the woods in West Virginia, not realizing that they're homeless to building a hundred million dollar salsa brand. Tell me about the process of, of how that all came about. I got out of a, out of a homelessness. Some lady found me on the street and gave me a place to stay. She knew who I was because she went to the university and wow, she was one of the cooks there. And shortly after that, probably a couple of weeks, uh, somebody entered me into a salsa contest. And the reason why is because when I was in college, I would make the salsa for my my friends and my friends would mm-hmm. tell my teachers and my teachers would have me bring bring it to class. So it was very popular. And so somebody signed me up. I didn't even know they signed me up until they, somebody called me and told me. And so I went to this contest. I think there was 15 contestants and I competed and I won unanimous vote first place. It was Mexican themed. Um, and people started coming up to me saying, how did you do this? You know, where can we buy more? It's so good. Where do you find this? And I said, well, I don't know what to say because I, I didn't have any money or anything. But at that contest, somebody gave me $800 to start my business. No kidding. Eight, yes. And so what do you do with $800 in a dream to start a business? Like, I imagine that buys you a fair amount of tomatoes to get started. But to talk about the process of growing that. Were you just selling it to friends and, you know, neighbors? Yes. So it was the best well-spent $800 of my life. Uh, the first thing that I bought was a little processor that cuts mm-hmm. the tomatoes. And then I would buy the tomatoes and sell it in the in one pint jars, uh, plastic containers to, to friends. And I would sell a ton of it and then reinvest the money and sell more and reinvest the money. And that's how Maggie's also started. And from there, talk about the journey of, you know, a lot of people are like, hey, I've got this side hustle, right? I'll make some salsa, make a couple hundred dollars here and there. You start cold calling grocery store chains just on your own, no business background. Yes, it was really tough because I didn't know anything about business. I mean, Google was my only research source. And I had to figure out how to do everything from containers, packaging, labels, to getting my own truck driver's license. And I was ready. I just needed to have the next step, and that is reaching out to supermarkets. And so the process began. And I remember writing a long list of stores to call from the smallest to the largest. And I started cold calling. And by the way, it was so scary because I, I'd never in my life, I just picked up the phone and, and called strangers. To for, ask for something, right? right? Right. To ask for something that they've never heard of, that it was weird or strange or different, different. I would say different because my product was different. That's why it became such a big hit. I think so much like when we talk about people's trauma histories and our life experience, we tend to bring those experiences into our life and business as adults. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How difficult was that? I mean, it's a fun story to be like, hey, I just picked up the phone. I called Whole Foods, right? (laughs) 
But how difficult is that when you have shared this experience in this life history of having to be self-reliant, of having to really just kind of count on yourself to get by? Was that more difficult than we're giving it credit for, for you to pick up the phone and just be able to ask other people for help or ask for the meeting? Or did you just have a knowingness that this was the next right step? Well, it was definitely difficult and scary as all can be. Yeah. Uh, but I knew that it was the next step that I needed to take in order to move forward and do something. And the only place that had my products was the market that I won the competition because they tried the product and they were like, mm. oh my gosh, we need to have it in our shelves. That was the key. People just needed to try it. And that's really how it grew by word of mouth. But what I did was that day that I sat down, I, I called 90 different stores <laughs> and they and they all told me no. And it felt so bad because uh, I wasn't very good with re- rejection. I was kind of devastated for a little bit, but I almost felt like I wanted to give up. And I decided to just put the list down and uh, I decided I'm going to take just a date to try to see if there's other ways that I can approach this or which, you know, another strategy or something. In the meantime, I was with uh, living with someone that told me you should you should get a job. What are you, you're not making any money. You're sure you're a loser. <laughs> the next day, I took that list and I turned it upside down. And at the very top of that list was the Whole Foods Market, which is in my mind the largest organic retailer in the United States. And sure, I called them and I left a message and I said, "Hey, my name is Maria Magdalena de la Cruz Garcia. I have an awesome pico de gallo de salsa that I think you guys would love." And left a message. The next day, it was about 6 p.m. I was in the parked in the city center in Charleston, and I get a call, and this guy says, "Hey, is this Maggie?" And I said, "Yeah." He says, "This is Eric with Whole Foods," and I'm I'm <laughs> like, "What is happening?" He said, "We heard about you. We want to know more. When can you come?" And I, I said, "Well, when do you guys meet?" He says, "Tomorrow at 9 a.m." And I'm like, "Holy, holy smokes! I, I have to uh, go back to the kitchen, make salsa, pack, it, and drive from West Virginia to Maryland." six to eight hours, depending on kind of vehicle you have. And I had a a little beater and I was like, am I going to make it? (laughs) But I did it. I made it. I arrived. I was just in time. I walked in their room and I was with my uh, salsa boxes. I was wearing a little skirt, my heels, everything. I walked in, put the product down. They started trying it and they ate it. Eric gets up, says, oh my gosh, we love this. Everybody loves it. When can we have it? And I said, well, how much do you need? He says, well, your first order is going to be 10,000 pounds of salsa. And I was like, I, now, I, up until then, you're making this all on your own in the kitchen, correct? Yes. Yes. Every up until then I was making about 250 pounds of salsa uh, for friends and I was selling it by the pint. And that order, that supermarket took me from $12,000 to $1.9 million in one year, just that supermarket. Wow. And then, and then what happened was that now I had credibility. And now that I was in Whole Foods, other supermarkets started reaching out to me because I might ha- must have something good. Right. <laughs> and so that's really how it quickly grew. Uh, but it, it didn't come without challenges because I, the first thing that I needed was money to forecast the goods and I didn't have any money. And I got so many rejections from banks. I was so mad, angry at them, but I understand now because I didn't have any, anything to show for. And so I decided, I figured out, I asked Whole Foods if they could get, if they could show me, if they could, you know, give me a paper that said that they would pay me. And they said, absolutely. It's called a contract. So 
we did a contract. I went to friends that I knew who could support me to get started with uh, what I needed, which was $20,000 in cost of goods. And I said, listen, look, Whole Foods will pay me $40,000 every week. And I just need $20,000 to get it started. And I'll give you a little extra. And they said, yes. So it took us a whole week to make all the salsa, all the 10,000 pounds to find the truck. And uh, within that week, uh, we made $40,000. We paid it the money back and it just kept multiplying and multiplying. And that's really how the, the company grew. But we had so many, we had so many challenges, but it was the mentality of myself and my team and what I instilled in them to really grow and expand and be able to provide and create a product that touched, has touched millions of people around the country. What is the biggest lesson that you learned in doing that? I hear so many themes in terms of just, A, continuing to fight, to speak up for your needs. I hear having to skill up and learn everything from, you went and got a commercial truck driving license, correct? Because you were actually making the salsa and driving and delivering it to places. Yes. But the other thing that I hear is, how quickly we can scale and reach our dreams. You went from 12,000 to 1.9 million in a year. I think so many people think that their dreams are far away. For you, like what's the biggest thing when you look back on it? For the person who's listening today, who's got a dream to start a business, to write a book, to start their company, and they're like, ah, that's not possible. What could you tell them today that would help them take the first step? Every person, every entrepreneur is unique in what they're trying to do. But if it, if it was more general that I could say is to be courageous, to step out of, outside of your box, outside of your comfort zone. When you do that, you begin to really achieve progress. If I wasn't courageous enough to grab that phone and start making those calls, I wouldn't have reached that gold in that mine. <laughs> And I wouldn't have been able to turn my life around. And I think, you know, being perseverant, uh, but there's three things that I mostly really believe that that entrepreneurs should have in order to be successful. And I call it the three R's of highly successful people. And one is to be relentless, to have a mentality of relentlessness, to do whatever it takes, no matter what. Uh, The other one is to be resilient. Like if something happens, you know, you whatever happens in your business, you, you bend, but you don't break. And being resourceful, resourceful is a key to business success because I started with nothing. I didn't have any money, but I was resourceful enough to see what kind of gifts do I have? How can I uh, become more resourceful within me that I could bring those gifts, those, uh, those, uh, that courage, that all these things that allowed me to attract the people, the place and the circumstances to get me that success you have to really look at those three because I really believe they're the fuel that, that drives the fire of the engine of, of the entrepreneur. And if you have those, especially in these times when things are not going so well, you know, what do you do? How do you innovate? How to, do you implement new tactics, tricks, uh, tips, whatever it is to grow your business? So you really have to get um, into that uh, thinking I call it the the think uh, the genius think tank. Your your mind and your and your soul, and say what can I do? What can I offer? What value can I give? Uh, because when you give more value, you always receive so much in return. And there are so many things that I could talk about: being resourceful, being resilient, and being relentless. My biggest resilient moment, I would say, is when my 
caregiver told me that I would never amount to anything, that I would die in prison and with AIDS because I came out to him. And uh, getting rejected from people, you know, I realized that being a Latina uh, minority, LGBTQ, and a businesswoman, it was actually the greatest benefit that I could ever have because that's how Walmart reached out to me. So what is the opportunity that you see in whatever quote-unquote challenge that's there, even though it's not really a challenge, it's just a challenge that somebody else has put something as a challenge in front of you. So look at everything, look at those three things. And really the only thing that becomes impossible is what you say is impossible when you give up on those things that could truly take you to the next level. The resilience thing, I mean, it's a timely topic for just what we're going through as a country, as a global community right now with pandemics and protests. The resilience thing is interesting to me because number one, the way we build resilience is to go through hardship, Mm -hmm. whether that be, you know, growing up hunting for your food, you know, and growing up in an orphanage in Mexico for other people, hardship is going through a divorce, you know, Mm -hmm. filing for bankruptcy, but you can't build resilience unless you go through the hardship. And so many of us want to avoid the difficult moments. And so we never really experience it or learn from it. But the other piece that I wonder if you could speak about resilience, I think that we look at it as withstanding adversity, just like being able to stand there and, and, and make it through the storm. But the other part, the other part of like, like the perseverance is also being able to pivot and adapt Yes. And to try something new or, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 a lot of people are like, well, Dan, I've tried everything to reach my goals. And then like they've tried the same two things a hundred times, mm-hmm. but they never yes. switch up the strategy. Where were the places? It, because, you know, we've talked about you getting to 1.9 million in a year. The brand was bought by Campbell's for over a hundred million years later. Mm-hmm. Where were the places along the way where you had to be adaptable and learn to pivot in order to to grow and evolve and, and win ultimately? Well, I would say I had to adapt and pivot a lot yeah. every single day, as a matter of fact. And I will tell you that my production process changed every single day because uh, we were growing and we had to we had to look at what new things that we could bring in to make us better every single day, every lunch day, I would buy them my team members lunch and we would discuss how we can make this better. And they were incentivized and that just brew a fire in them to try to grow with me. Um, But as far as something really, really big for me, probably the biggest uh, that I could relate to, you know, a a crisis in my business that I had to go through was when that big salmonella um, outbreak took place when all the tomato products that they were all gone from the market. And then the price of the, the tomatoes went up $40 over the estimate that I had to made to, to make uh, money. And I was driving to Whole Foods with a truck full of product, like literally a huge truck. And they called me and says, we can't take your order. We just got this recall. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So um, I had to never stop and, and try to figure out how to to know exactly where these tomatoes came from like how can i track them back let me call the supplier how we can get proof and then how to pivot in terms of the tomato prices in the market were up so high i was i was paying three dollars and fifty cents for 40 pound case of tomatoes and it went up to 40. wow i would have been out of business right but i figured out a way to make it happen 
without raising the the uh, supermarket prices, store shelf prices, because that's not what they want. But also understanding, you know, I became one of the fewest uh, salsa products out there because I was able to figure out ways to make this happen. And sure. and, and, and then I became knowledgeable about uh, sourcing from other countries, sourcing from other regions. It was just an interesting time where I grew it. Like you said, it helped me grow tremendously from that standpoint of a lot of business that did go out of business during that time. And, uh, and it's a very scary thing to do. And the really cool thing that I did with my products is that I, when I priced the price of each container or, or each case, I did a range and the highest range was something where I would barely break even in the lowest range. So I put my product pricing right in the middle in case I ever had that. Mm-hmm. And so that helped me tremendously also and not going out of business immediately. And so, so I would say that that was probably the biggest uh, pivoting moment for my business. There's an interesting postscript to the story, which, you know, obviously, you know, we mentioned it earlier, Campbell's came in and bought out, well, your company was bought twice. It was bought by one yes. company, which was eventually yes. bought out by Campbell's. But the number on that was what? A hundred and what? 231 million. Yeah. You know, not bad for an $800 <laughs> seed investment in some tomatoes yes. and a processor. <laughs> yes. Obviously, you were set for life at that point. You you had made yes. a, a great amount of money. You've given a lot of that money back, if I'm not mistaken, yes. into philanthropic yes. efforts. Talk mm-hmm. about what living your dream and taking your purpose and bringing it to life has allowed you to do on the back end, which I think people are going to be really moved by. I think that the biggest thing that happened to me I've always been an advocate for helping those in need, especially coming from a a place where I grew up in a situation where uh, somebody sent money and tried to help, even though we wouldn't receive the the fruits of that money all the time because it was spent on helping others externally. I think that the biggest thing for me was really centering on where I came from, and I discovered that uh, children were being trafficked by drug cartels in Mexico. And so I went down there and with a team, we helped rescue 31 orphan children uh, from a drug cartel that were severely raped, two, three, four-year-old boys and girls, and, and a little bit older too. And we were able to involve, involve the military and the federales. And it was a very uh, scary very scary time of my life because I felt like I was I could die. I mean, I kept with me a, a 38 special handgun and the other person that was with me who was an adopted brother who's still down in Mexico, he had a handmade um, rifle, uh, a Chisa uh, rifle. And uh, but we were very, very successful. Um, and the, the kids have a place to stay and they're safe. And, um, and I, I've, I've been a part of um, other philanthropic uh, purposes as far as feeding children in third world countries uh, with foods. And as a matter of fact, for every container of product we sold, a certain percentage of that was uh, the money's made was, was uh, donated. Or we actually, in some cases, went to those countries and bought the food and put on their storage because of what happened when I was growing up where I wouldn't see we wouldn't see the food so I did that and I and that was a huge blessing knowing that I could uh, make a tiny difference in well I think a a bigger difference in people's lives you know for me some people give with money their time things or their life and 
I'm just so grateful that nothing happened to me, but I'm also grateful that, that I was able to help and I really would do it all over again if it was to, to help little girls and little boys like that. It sounds to some degree, like when you think about this journey, it sounds like a movie, right? Growing up, mm-hmm. you know, creating your own cave to hide in your hiding place, <laughs> learning basketball blindfolded, going to play for the Mexican national team, but not really. And then by this random chance meeting, getting a collegiate scholarship, mm-hmm. building a $200 million salsa brand from $800, mm-hmm. taking the proceeds of that, going back to rescue children. Mm-hmm. Would yes. you like to share the other piece that's happening right now in terms of uh, the interest that you're getting about your life story? Because I think that this is pretty spectacular. Yes. So I've been uh, I reached out by a film festival, the president of a film festival, and they are uh, started working on a movie script uh, for my story. And they're going to be wow. pitching for a future a feature film. And I, as a matter of fact, I'm calling him right after this call. And so I'm, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. And uh, just another way that, I, that, that love and, and courage and inspiration can be shared with the world. Who do you want to play you in the movie? Important question. <laughs> like if you had to pick an, ac- an actress to, put, to portray your story, who would it be? <laughs> probably Holly Berry, but she's probably older yeah. than me, maybe. Although I'm I don't know. I don't, now, know. So I don't know. Yeah, I think she's a little older, but that's yes. remarkable. I hope what people take away from this time that we've spent today, there's so many people who are like, who am I to make a difference? I'm just one person. You know, we tend to minimize the impact that we can make, if not in the world, then at least on our community or mm-hmm. the people around us. What could you leave people with today to let them know that in fact, one person's life can have a ripple effect out into the world when they, when they align with their divine mission, their purpose, their calling, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. I would say in everything that you do, be kind and always give more value than what you expect to receive back because it is like a ripple effect. You won't know the effect that you've done, but sometimes you, it will show, sometimes it will come back to you. I was in Charleston and I went to a place where they feed the homeless, a food shelter. And we, I took a group of 15 people that were my friends and we went in and and fed them. And I took about 50 books of mine and there was about 350 homeless and they came in, they started to eat. And I stood up on a teeny tiny chair and I had my heels on and I said, hey, guys, at the entrance, I gave you a little paper. It's got a number of keep it safe because I'm going to do a raffle. I'm going to give away my book for free. But first, I needed to tell you my story. I wanted to tell you that I was in the place where you are. Wow. And I said, "Um, I'm going to give you this gift. And I know that you're going through some stuff and uh, maybe you maybe this will help you to come through. And, and make a difference for your life. And I understand, I've been in the streets that homelessness could be a mental illness. It could be many different things. But there are people that are homeless because of circumstance. Mm-hmm. And so I shared and I was giving away the books. I was calling the numbers and people were so excited coming up. And there was this man, he was sitting uh, about 15 feet away from me and he had his little paper and he was so excited. And... And I just kept seeing him 
and I decided, you know what, what if I, he doesn't want a book, I'm just going to grab one. And I told the person that was passing me the book, just save me this book right here. And she did. And when the raffle ended, he kind of got sad and his arms went down and her shoulders went down. And I grabbed the book and I ran from behind and I grabbed them like this. And I put the, um, the book in front of him, like from, like as I was hugging him and he just burst in and he was so happy. And he had a phone that with the cracked screen of the flip phone says, can I take a selfie with you? I said, sure. And we took a selfie and I signed the phone and everything. About six months later, I was in town eating at this very fancy sushi restaurant with uh, business people who were buyers of my products. And I was eating when one of the buyers stood up and went to the bathroom and directly in front of me to the back of the room was this man that just started staring at me. And I said, why is this man staring at me? <laughs> and he got up and he started coming towards me. I said, okay, here we go. And I, and, and he comes to me and he says, are you the salsa lady? And I said, yeah. He says, oh my gosh. He says, you came to the shelter about six months ago and you gave me this book and I wanted to let you know that I started two businesses and I have a girlfriend that I've, I've kept for, for six months that I've never been able to do. Thank you so much. Your book changed my life. Ripple effect. Sometimes you will know, sometimes you will never know, but it doesn't matter because you are making a difference. That's why when I speak on stages, it doesn't matter if I, if, if I reach one person, I know I have, I've, I've done that. I know people will remember and they'll get encouragement. And maybe I said something that resonated and, and created an impact in their life. That's why I do what I do now. Incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your journey with us today. I, I really do believe in my heart that somebody, that somebody listening today, their life has changed because of this yes. conversation, that you've given some hope, some inspiration, that you've shown new possibilities at a time when we all need to lean into possibilities and not drama. Sure. Maggie, uh, tell us a little bit more about the book. Where can people find it and where can people connect with you online? So it's called uh, Mindful Success, and you can find it on Amazon. It's been out since 2013. And if you would like to connect with me, you can go to Maggie, that's Maggie with one G, uh, MaggieCook.com, M-A-G-I-E-C-O-O-K.com. And you'll find everything there. I'm on social media also. You, you can find it through the, the website. Thank you so much for the time today. It's really been an honor and a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much. I promised you that interview was going to be epic. If you loved it as much as I did, uh, please share this with a friend. You can also screenshot the podcast, upload it to your Instagram stories. You can tag me at CSC Dan Mason, and you can find Maggie at Maggie Cook, M-A-G-I-E-C-O-O-K. Be sure to let us know your number one takeaway. One of the big things for me in that interview is we talk all the time about the cost of not making the courageous decision to live your purpose, to give your gifts to the world. And, and so often when I say that, people think that their gift has to be starting a coaching business or writing a best-selling book. You know, Maggie's initial gift was the gift of her food, giving fresh salsa that wasn't that goopy stuff in a jar that you would buy at the supermarket. There was value in that for consumers. She made a lot of money, but Maggie's gifts 
were so much more. You know, she's still giving them today just as an inspirer and a speaker. So you might not even understand the depth of the gifts that you have just yet, but you still have to take the first step anyway. And my other big takeaway from that is the more you allow yourself to prosper by living your purpose, the more you can help other people. Yes, Maggie is inspiring people all over the world by sharing her story, but the money she made allowed her to go literally step in and stop sex trafficking in Mexico. You know, lives were saved. Children's lives were saved because she said yes to her purpose. So be sure to pick up Maggie's book, Mindful Success, How to Use Your Mind to Transform Your Life. It's available on Amazon. And you can find Maggie online, maggiecook.com. If you're a person who is feeling stuck, you know that you have a bigger game that you are here to play in 2021. You have a gift that you want to give, but you're not quite clear about what that is or how to bring it to life. I do have spots available for one-on-one coaching. You can get the info on that by going to my website, creativesoulcoaching.net. Thank you so much for spending this time with me this week. I love you for listening. And in the meantime, turn down the volume on your negativity, turn up the volume on your purpose so you can live life amplified. I'll talk to you next week.